Hello and welcome to the Walk Around Podcast, powered by JMA Group. I am one of your hosts, Mark Spoto, joined by Elliot Shore. Hey now. And today we are welcoming Aaron Kerrigan. So if you are in the automotive business, if you are a dealer owner or a principal, you are going to want to hear from Erin. Uh, she is, if you don't know who she is, she is the managing director of Kerrigan Advisors, which she founded in 2014. They're coming up on their 10 year anniversary and their group is the leading sell side advisor uh, to automotive dealers and buy sell transactions in the U.S. Since the firm was founded, they have sold over 200 dealerships, including more of the top 150 than any other firm. And that represents over $6 billion in transactions. So clearly she knows the business. She's got a unique pulse on what's happening in the market, uh, both from a retail perspective and just sentiment among dealers. Yeah, I mean, automotive, unlike any other business in the United States, is one of the most dynamic businesses that someone can own or work or be a part of. And, um, you know, Arian, we learned, certainly has her finger on the pulse. And I think the, you know, the biggest, most interesting thing was talking about the, uh, the the new part of the Kerrigan report, which uh, the trusted the trust index that was interesting. the trust index was very very interesting and trust as it relates to uh, franchise values yeah very interesting conversation this was a great great interview I hope you enjoy it let's take a walk around with Aaron Kerrigan. Well, welcome, Aaron Kerrigan, to the Walk Around Podcast. It is so great for you to join us. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Well, we're excited because, you know, I think it's an understatement to say you are an authority on the automotive retail business. Um, so we consider it a, an honor to be able to talk to you and gain some insights to share with our audience. Yeah, and the and I would say that the buy sell market these days is just fascinating. Absolutely. In the sense that you know, you we're coming off of this, you know, sort of record profits for the dealers coming off of the pandemic and inventory shortages and um, you know, and I think, you know, the question on everyone's mind, you know, and is is what is uh, you know what is maybe we'll go right to you know the future and start yeah, there but let's start there what does 2024 hold you know for dealer valuations you know I, obviously my crystal ball isn't perfectly clear uh, because i wouldn't have expected 23 to be what it was if you'd asked me a year ago uh our firm is going to do $2.6 billion in transactions this year for wow, and sell over amazing. 50 dealerships. I did not expect that uh, going into <laughs> 23 for obvious reasons. We, we were in a rising interest rate environment and, and yet, you know, it, it, it was a record year, certainly for our, or will be a record year for our firm, but, and the industry, we're tracking to over 400 transactions in 23. So what happens in 24? I it, it is hard, of course, to yeah. to figure out what will happen. I do think valuations come down in 24. I think it's important for everyone to understand, though, that they're not going to come down at the same rate that earnings come down. Hmm. And I say that in that 
the valuations we experienced in 21 and 22 never, never really, buyers were not valuing businesses in 22 based on peak earnings. They always assumed a normalization. So the level upon which earnings rose was not the same level upon which valuations rose. In the same regard as valuations come down, and pardon me, as earnings come down, valuations are not tracking at the same at the same decline level because they never rose at the same peak level either. Hmm. They, the, buyers always buy businesses, and this is this is in any business based on future expected profitability. Sure. And so every tra- almost every transaction was taking into account a normalization of earnings. So the normalization process that we are currently experiencing, where earnings are coming down, has always been baked into valuations, even in twenty one and twenty two when. When earnings were astronomical, buyers were still saying, okay, I'm going to value this business on where I think we're going to normalize. And so I think that's a really, really important concept for everyone to understand. And and that's why we don't see valuations coming down very much, but we didn't see them go up as high as as earnings went either. That's interesting. So when you when you talk about viewing it in terms of normalizing what is the timeline for normalizing so if someone's valuing a dealership at a certain level and they're putting an offer in are they basing that on normalizing over one to two years or the next five years where where does that fall out and you know that's a great question and that's exactly where the challenge is it depends on the eye of the beholder right, right. And where where are earnings going to normalize and when are they going to normalize so many are starting to think that 23 24 will be a normalized year with the concept of what is the new normal right. the new normal is a business that has many fewer employees if you look industry wide we the employee count per dealership is is about 20% lower than it was pre-pandemic. So inherently a more efficient business. Now, mind you, those employees are more expensive, right? We do have inflationary impact on our business model. So there, there is some offset to the fewer employees in that they are more expensive employees. So that's one aspect of normalization on the expense structure side. Now, the, the other question is, of course, normalization on the gross profit per vehicle side. Clearly, the, that that number is coming down as we see inventories rise. We're at about two and a half million of inventory at right now in new vehicle inventory. Three million is where we kind of we, we sat pre-pandemic. So we're we're quickly approaching a pre-pandemic level. That being said, we are also approaching closer to the pre-pandemic norm of the 16 to 17 million SAR, which we're not there yet, but that's coming. And as 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 we see volume increase, that's going to counterbalance some of the gross profit declines. And many do predict that we're not going to quite hit the pre-pandemic gross profit per vehicle that we had um, that we had in 19. We're going to we're going to retain some of this margin that we gained during the pandemic because we ultimately will it is expected not get to the 90 day supply of new vehicles that we, we we got to a point where we're almost averaging that for many for many franchises and and there is an expectation of some some discipline on the part of the OEM now the equation mm-hmm. that is is the real 
uh, monkey wrench in all this prediction is is EVs. Right. Mm. So well, that's yeah. yeah, and that's a great point. I mean, so are you seeing sellers come to market who maybe don't want to, who are getting, I would say, maybe thrown off by EVs and and the amount of focus maybe by um and money being invested in evs and what the oems are saying with evs they just the, don't want to deal with it yeah, what the government is saying yeah. and, and thinking about investments in infrastructure and are just saying you know what it's been a good run yeah uh time to pass this on to someone it's, else it's almost uh it requires a reinvention of their business totally right so are some people using that as a as a spark to and and on the flip side do you see new buyers coming right. to market that are all in on EVs and saying, this is the future, let me get in on it now. We we definitely see both of what you just mm. described. So there's no question that, that there are many longtime dealers or second and third generation dealers that are saying, golly, this is not my father's Oldsmobile, this business model <laughs> going forward. This is this is really different. And 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 really, if you look at our dealer survey that just came out, it, it, I think the the results of that survey we asked, you know, what is your trust level in OEMs? And the yes. divergence in responses by franchise was pretty extreme. With forty six percent of dealers saying we have no trust in Ford, and seventy two percent of dealers saying we have high levels of trust in Toyota. So, I mean, th- those are vastly different results. And I think they really speak volumes to just with the changing that's going on, there's a lot of concern and skepticism about what on earth are these OEMs doing with this EV policy and our government. I mean, the OEMs are not there. They they have yeah. some requirements. So, but there's just a lot of concern about creating a business model that just that just doesn't work as evidenced by the lack of consumer demand for EVs. And you have situations like in certain states, certain OEMs have already hit their threshold for how many ICE vehicles they can sell in 2023. And literally their 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 dealers can only sell ICE vehicles, which are not, pardon me, only sell EV vehicles, which are not selling. Right. And so they are, I mean, it, it's, it's, a- it's going to be a very crazy period. So that is definitely prompting some dealers who say, I, I just, this is not, what I have assigned. I, I don't want to yeah. sign up for re-engineering my whole business model. Right. I hope that the OEM gets it right. And right. it's not that the jury's out on it. Totally. I'm I'm glad you brought up the Kerrigan report. And we were we were absolutely going to bring it up too. And you know, I think, you know, to your point, one of the things that Mark and I, when we were talking earlier and reading through that report, was the trust index. And I guess our first question before we we did want to talk about the actual numbers and trust, and because you're right, it is we were fascinated with just the divergence in manufacturer response. I mean, it because it really doesn't mirror some of the other surveys out there. NEDA does a brand survey that you know it's much tighter of a band in terms of. But our question was, what's the relationship between trust and valuation or trust and buy-sell? Where does that linkage come in that you guys thought to add this trust factor into the Kerrigan report? There is such a direct linkage between that question and valuation. Hmm. Uh, I will share with you right now 
the the value of a Toyota franchise just continues to rise because if I'm a dealer and I love being a dealer, where am I going to put my capital where I have confidence that I will continue to get a return on my investment? Right. And it's in the franchises that you have trust in. So it's not just Toyota. It's it's uh, Subaru. It's it's Porsche. I mean, these franchises that have continued to show that they and Honda, that, that they know how to run a model that's not only successful for them, but it's successful for their dealers. That's where capital is flowing. And it's just like any economics 101 course that we all took. When you have a finite supply, which you inherently have with those de- those franchises I mentioned, and right. you have enormous demand, right. that drives valuation up. By contrast, it's not to say that there aren't buyers looking for Ford dealers, dealerships. There are definitely buyers for Ford dealerships, but your ability to push that value up given the negative news is 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 harder because there's not as many looking for, for for Ford franchises as there are looking for Toyota franchises. It's interesting when you look at the data, right? I mean, Toyota certainly stands out in terms of their trust level. And then when you go throughout the rest of the manufacturers, there's a big drop off. Big drop off. Between Toyota and... And really the fourth Honda. Yeah. Right? Honda, we're, we're looking at the data right we're in front of us. We're looking at it. You know, Honda is the number fourth most trusted brand in the survey. At 36%. At 36% compared to Toyota at 72. I mean, it just drops off a cliff. And then you've got a lot of people on the list with with a moderate level of trust, right? So is that just a natural skepticism uh, on the part of of dealers, do you think? Or what's behind that? In our experience, and we've sold more Toyota franchises than any firm in the country, the Toyota is on its own in, in its own playing field. Yeah. And the rest of the OEMs are kind of in the other playing fields because, <laughs> and I say that not, we speak to dealers all day long and, and they, ha, they're very skeptical of most of the OEMs about what are they doing? I mean, you have Honda who is partnering to create it's... an electric vehicle that is not going to use the dealer body. So, yeah, right. That, that undermines trust. There's some red flags there. That's a red flag. Totally. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so, so every time the OEMs do things like that, it it undermines trust. And 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 truly, I think Toyota is unique in that it, it really does speak to it from top to bottom. They are all about making sure their dealer network is successful because if the dealer network's successful, we're successful. The other OEMs often have a zero sum game kind of mentality. And right. that's where the negativity and the lack of trust, uh, it, it resides in that, in that, in that it's, there's, you can, you can see it. There's a push, there's this push pull uh, on economics. It's not win-win it's, and, and you can see it also, in the increasing in the pricing of new vehicles, right? So inherently, when, is, when, when the grosses went crazy in 21 and 22, some OEM said, oh, that's for me. That's my money. You know, right. that, that money over MSRP. Okay, we're going to increase the MSRP because too much is going to the dealer body. It, what Toyota did is really go to their dealers and say, look, we don't really want, we're, this is, let's all win here, but we don't really want you guys to, 
to 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 charge too much over MSRP. Like that's not who we are as an industry and a business. And 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 our that's not our business model. But that's not what the other OEMs did. The other OEMs said, "Okay, hey, I want some of that," and they just increased their prices. And yeah. now, by the way, a lot of those OEMs, I won't name names, but are suddenly finding they have a hundred day supply of vehicles because. <laughs> You know, you were late to the party. Sorry, but right. not, the market doesn't won't support that number anymore. Yeah, looking at you, Stellantis. The um, <laughs> um, right, and that directly correlates to your trust index and your valuations of the brands. And so, but it is interesting. You know, we're obviously close to Toyota in 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 where our company sits, and right. I was a Toyota district manager in in Miami, and. Um, I can tell you everything you're talking about is true in firsthand. It's it's a it's a deliberate focus on success of the dealer, and it's a stated focus, and it's extremely deliberate. And you know the thing that got gets me about what you're talking about with the pandemic and sort of the land grab um, is the short term thinking and of some of the other manufacturers in just and even with EVs. Right. Like Toyota has been the only one that has stood there and said over and over, despite criticism from their board, right, despite criticism from investors, they have said there over and over saying EVs are not the only answer. They're part of the solution. They're not the only solution. And guess what? We're going to bring them when it makes sense. And they've done that. And I think, would you say that that has also helped their valuations and the trust index has been their stance on vehicles? I, I do think so. I do think that they were willing to fight the good fight and state what is clearly evident today in the marketplace, which is that not only are, is our infrastructure not there, but it's also just really bad policy from a from a uh, from our uh, geopolitically for us because we don't control the minerals that go into batteries and. Uh, and we have tremendous access to 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 fossil fuels that that don't need to be used abundantly, but can be used in a in a increasingly smaller amount while we use hybrids. And so I, I and that is a greener solution that I think they really are are saying what what needs to be said. And 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 I, I'm hoping that some of our our our, our elected mm. officials start seeing that you know the marketplace is clearly not ready for EVs and the cost and the environmental impact of building out the infrastructure is significant and it's not going to be very green uh so no. i i it is my sincere hope that everything that toyota has said and done uh, as evidenced by their success relative to those that have jumped right into the EV bandwagon that 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 the Toyota success helps us to turn back the clock a bit on some of these uh very aggressive yeah government yep. mandates and you know it's interesting one of the hidden sort of success of Toyota that I can speak to directly is that it's the, when you have a confident dealer body they invest more in their mm -hmm. facilities they spend more on advertising and it feeds this animal that just it, it seeks to work in harmony because when you have an unconfident dealer body which i'm sure 
at times you, as you're going through buy sells and manufacturers are making demands on facilities, well, if you're not confident in what that brand is saying, are you really going to be confident in laying out millions of dollars to support their brand? Uh, that's exactly right. And, 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 and I, I think that one of the things we did another survey of the OEM executives and what was really disturbing about the results of that survey is the OEM executives, we had over a hundred senior executives respond across all OEMs. And they said, look, you know, we think there's a chance agency model comes. We think there's a, there, some percentage of them said that some percentage of them uh, over around 17% said, I expect that the OEM is going to own the data and hmm. the customer data and the customer relationship. 17% said it's going to be only us. You guys aren't going to have any, you're just going to drop cars off. Wow. And you know, around 60% said we're going to share that relationship, whatever that means. So, you know, you have these, and, and then others said, we're going to go to non-negotiable pricing, like a very small percentage uh, minority of the OEM executives interviewed said, we're going to continue to price the way we price vehicles where dealers have pricing power and dealers are effectively making the market. So you have all these announcements um, and yet they expect the cost of the facilities to go up on dealers. So that that doesn't make any sense. That doesn't make sense that they are saying, oh, you know, you're just going to be a delivery service. And oh, by the way, we're going to go all EV, which requires very little service. And you're going to have very fewer cars on your lot. But, you know, you're going to spend a lot more money on your real estate. Uh, well, who, 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 who's going to sign up for that? Yeah, so that sign me up, right? Like, right. Sounds I mean, like a dream. Kind of a mixed yeah. message. If I could, yeah. would you? You know? Yeah. Um, now, I will share with you that one of the things that we find pretty interesting is that buyers here to date have not really baked in the assumption that fixed operations as a business segment is going to be a declining hmm. revenue business. Hmm. Which speaks to me, and then we're talking about the largest national buyers, the 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 major the major sure. consultants. Which speaks to me that again, I believe markets are efficient, and I think the market is saying, "Look, we don't we don't think this is going to change anytime soon." It, w w there are going to be a lot of EV. Uh, pardon me, a lot of ICE vehicles. Totally, to, absolutely, to service for years to come. Well, you're right because you know when you look at the uh, the units in operation UIO and you consider I think EVs what last quarter were maybe a little less than ten percent of the overall new car market. You still have 150 million used vehicles, 99 percent of them being ICE vehicles on the road, and with affordability the way it is, with used cars you know cars lasting longer. You know, the average age of a vehicle on the road is over 13 years now. It, it, it plays exactly, I think, into what you're talking about. It's going to take a long time for EVs to really make a dent in the fixed ops business. Um, but, you know, it's interesting. I think Hertz came out the other day and was saying, you know, I think initially they said they, they had a whole fleet of Teslas. And now, admittedly, Tesla's doing some stuff with their pricing. But right. Um, but they did say it's maybe not as uh, cost efficient as they once thought it was mm -hmm. um, to uh, to to service the EVs. But all right, let's yeah, switch let's gears. So, Aaron, I think we wanted to talk to you also about um, being an entrepreneur because so many dealers uh, have that skill naturally uh, among them, and there's probably some of our listeners who are 
part of a group or have been in the automotive business for a long time and maybe are thinking about doing something on their own. So you were kind of the model for that. You worked many years in this business of buy sells and then decided to start your own thing. What what led you to that and kind of what what are some uh, pitfalls or some things you would suggest to others who are thinking about going out on their own? Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> so, you know, for me, I, I, I started writing for Dealer Magazine in around 2009. And I would write about finance and, and buy sells and valuation and private equity and auto retail. And, and then I started speaking. Uh, I also started speaking at, at the NADA convention. I'd never given a speech in my life. And I, I did a speech on the credit crisis <laughs> in 2009. And I was terrified, but it turned out that I had a knack for speaking and, uh, and really was building my own brand, if you will, in that I was speaking and people were coming up to me. And, and, and that's when I really realized there was an opportunity to start start my own firm uh, with my team and and build a firm that really was quite different from the brokerage model you see out there. We are unique in that I, I we only represent sellers. Hmm. And when we my partner, business partner, when we were starting, said, "You sure you want to do that? You sure you, we we want to just draw the." line in the sand and say, these are our clients. And I felt very strongly about it because I think that the challenge that I saw in my prior firm was that the 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 dealers were very skeptical of the brokerage community because they were unclear who the brokers were representing. Are they representing mm. the buyer? Are they representing the seller? Are they representing the deal? And so I, I felt very strongly that these are very valuable family businesses this is the largest transaction our clients do in their in generations in many cases and and so i i felt that our business as the value gets bigger and bigger for these businesses they need to be represented professionally and there needs to be a clear fiduciary responsibility of your advisor that you are committed to the seller and 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 advising the seller now um we of course spend a lot of time getting to know the buyers and and we know what buyer criteria is but our fiduciary responsibility is to the seller and 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 we also decided early on to not have a brokerage model so we have one deal team so every transaction every engagement we commit every individual and caregiver advisors is working for our client uh together and and we 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 believe that that model is is it's actively managed but it's not a listing service this is not a passive engagement we're not putting up you know we're not saying here's what we got today we got you know that that is it's on the website <laughs> it, it couldn't be further from that and we do believe that that that's the secret of our success is is really you know to well we look at our clients' business like they're our business, and we take each engagement extremely seriously and manage it very actively to ensure it's successful. And it's a roll your sleeves up and and work from beginning to end to get the deal done. And and I think that that ethos has really served our firm very well. The other thing I'll just say is that we're very data driven, so we we have 
we track everything. You know, we have a very detailed database. So every conversation with every buyer we ever have, we track what they're looking for so that we're we're really not wasting anyone's time. We're, we're, we run a very targeted sale process. We only are approaching the select number of buyers we know are interested in our client's business. And while we're not representing the buyers, we're very respectful to know we don't want to waste anyone's time. Sure. And so we 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 really do invest as much time in understanding what buyers are looking for as we do understanding what our you know our clients' business. So that's that's awesome. I mean, yeah. and, and how many years now has Kerrigan Advisors been been uh, in in making dealers and doing business out there? So uh, next year will be our tenth year. Our tenth wow! Year. Congratulations. Right. You know, hard to believe. And I look back and I I do get a little tired when I think about how many blue sky reports I've written every time. <laughs> how many planes, how many planes you've been on, I'm sure. How many planes, but it's uh, really more than anything. It's our team. Our team is incredible. Uh, we have, uh, we have very long tenured team members who are, are the core of our success. And I, I really attribute our success to our team and, and, the uh and when we look back as a team we we kind of just look back in awe of what we've accomplished uh each in one transaction at a time but really one family at a time one family that we're representing and uh usually most of our clients are family and our our families that are looking to monetize their uh, generations of hard work and and so uh it's amazing but we will in in those 10 years, I've done over $7 billion of proceeds to clients. And I think that's a pretty incredible uh, achievement for the team. Amazing. Awesome. So to sum it up, what I heard in there was build your brand, Yeah. right? You never know where it's going to lead, right? Um, look for opportunities, right? Be on the lookout. Create differentiation. Create differentiation. Have like, a strategy. Aaron, Pick identify. Your strategy. Being, yeah, she identified something that others in the market weren't doing. That's right. And and despite the fact that it might have uh, reduced the commercial viability of the business at the beginning, you believed in the long-term path that it was the best thing. And the last thing that I heard over and over was focus on your customer, right? Focus on providing value to your customer and uh, and the rest will take care of itself. Yep. So a lot, a lot of what you said, that's great, great advice in there for everybody. Um, anyone starting a business. Absolutely. So Aaron, we're going to pivot again to our final segment of the walk around. Um, we refer to this as a sure thing. You may have heard about it. Um, maybe you haven't. <laughs> but the uh, the premise of it is Elliot here uh, has some hot takes and opinions on things going on. And we will ask you as our guest to validate his thoughts and tell us, is it a sure thing or not a sure thing? Please be brutally honest. He can take it and we enjoy watching him squirm. Oh, oh we as in Mark enjoys watching <laughs> me squirm. So um, so yeah, we'll we'll dive right into it. And we touched on on some of this and um, but um, and but we didn't talk about we talked about valuations for 2024. We didn't talk about volume or number of transactions. And I have a firm belief that 
the number of transactions in 2024 will go up significantly higher than a already robust 2023 market. As the market tightens, as profits come down, I think you're going to see some sellers dive in that may be worried that they missed their time. And so I believe that it's a sure thing that the number of transactions in 2024 will rise compared to 2023. Sure thing or not a sure thing? Not a sure thing. Oh, no. <laughs> see how, see the delight in the space right here? I also love I, that it was so quick to, um, tell to us, refute yes. your, your sure thing. Tell us Sorry. more. Tell us why. The reason I don't think transaction activity is a sure thing to rise next year is because I do agree with you that that more sellers will come to market, but I think valuation expectations are going to be high. And I think buyers, because their earnings are also coming down. Remember, whoever's buying a dealership is also a dealer. Mm -hmm. And as they experience a contraction in earnings, I do think you're going to see it. I think the the bid and the ask are going to be wider. Mm -hmm. And so coming to agreement on valuation is going to be harder in my expectation in 24. And no dealer has to sell. There are mm -hmm. everyone's still making a lot of money for the most part. So the seller that doesn't get his or her price is not going to sell. And so I do think you you I don't think valuations are going to come down because the deals that I think get done will be on the higher end. But I think there will be fewer of them because the buyers and sellers are not going to agree as easily on valuation. Interesting. Well, that goes right into your next short thing. That it? does. That does. So that's an interesting perspective, yeah. too, because it's what I hear you saying is there might be more available listings, but less deals that actually close because of the gap between the buyers and sellers, if I heard you correctly. That's correct. I'm, I was trying to back into a half a point, Mark. But <laughs> I'm sorry. Okay. It's over. Not, not happening. Okay. Gotcha. All right. Let's move on. Next question. Um, so, you know, a lot's been made of the big groups buying. Uh, when you look at the last few years, the big groups have set records in terms of what they've bought, how much they've bought it for. I mean, um, and um, but I believe that the big public groups are going to sell more than what more than what they buy in 2024. Sure thing or not a sure thing? Not a sure thing. <laughs> <laughs> We're ending on a high note. This is really uh, fun. <laughs> you are back. Over <laughs> two. You see the public's continuing to just grow and grow. It's not that, Elliot. I I think a lot of their 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 decisions to divest versus acquire. If you look, it's very much driven by their stock price. Mm. So where their stock price is headed in 2024 i have no idea but it's sure, certainly not a sure thing that they're going to divest <laughs> more than they're going to buy i so, love the conviction love uh, it so yeah i do not think it's a sure thing uh, i think who would have thought in 23 that five of the six new new publics new car dealers that are public would have hit all-time record stock prices when we had interest rates rise 2,000%. That is fascinating. True. And and Good so, point. and what we typically see, like the Coons transaction that we're representing on, which is the third largest transaction in, in industry history and the most ever paid for a regional dealership group, in that transaction, 
I mean, th- those don't happen unless the stock market is is amenable to these these companies such that they these deals are accretive to earnings. And if you look at when 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 the when the public's divest, it's typically when they can get a higher value in the market than what their stock price is trading. So it's a no brainer to sell off franchises because it's that too is accretive to earnings for them. If hmm. they can sell a dealership at a higher multiple than their stock is trading at, which right. that happens in our hmm. industry. It's a it's a complete oddity of our industry that we have that the publics, because they are a small percentage of our industry, right, do not drive the valuations of our industry. The private sector really drives most of the valuation. And so the level to which the publics divest or acquire is very much driven by the financial markets and 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 Wall Street. And so I don't know what that's going to look like next year, but that will be the driver. Well, and if you did, you could certainly tell us because we would be happy to invest alongside with you. But yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. All right, our final final question. Final question. Uh-oh, so, I'm, I'm going to feel badly if I say nothing. No, 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 Aaron. Maybe this is the point of this. That, that is know, kind of the point. I, I feel like I'm going to. We need to make sure Elliot's so opinions are grounded. Right? Yes, like, we got to keep me. You know, keep, keep me in check. Keep them so, honest. So I'm going to go a little off script on this one, but mm, um, exciting. But I'm going to say that in 2024 you are going to see a new crop of entrepreneurs enter the dealership market that believe in retail, but believe that it needs to be done differently. And so my prediction is you will see first-time buyers enter the market in 2024 at a higher pace than maybe what has happened in the last few years. Sure thing or not a sure thing? It's 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 not not a sure thing. Okay, wait, wait, is that an agreement? I think that's a sure thing. <laughs> a slight agreement. I, I mean, I think a sure thing is is like a guarantee, and I think nothing. I, I wouldn't guarantee you that's going to happen, but I think I do believe that as we normalize as a business, we're going to see a differentiation between those that took the period of COVID. To really figure out how to optimize the business model in a better way, get rid of the F&I department by way of example and have a single sales. Sorry, that's not great for JMA, but that's all good. We, we're right. <laughs> no, what I what I don't mean get rid of it. I mean use that you have you know, yeah, look for efficiency. organization, make it a more efficient business model, totally not have a whole sales team and then have a whole F&I sales team effectively, you know. Those that really said, okay, I'm making more money than I ever have made. So I'm going to use this period of, of, of plenty to really look at my business model and see how I can optimize it for the future because I have so much cushion to do so. I'm making so much money. I can play, I can tinker and maybe I make a little bit less money, but in the long run, I'm going to be extremely ready for the changes coming. And I do think that, that our industry has a lot of opportunity to reduce the expense structure that is that is quite high to sell a vehicle. And I, I think that the entrepreneurs out there that think creatively, it's not easy to do. I'm not suggesting this is an easy uh, endeavor, no. but those that that either did it during the pandemic because they, they felt they could do it 
or those that are have been analyzing our industry forever and are, stu- are students of the industry, I do think they'll have a, a great opportunity uh, to do this. And 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 quite honestly, too, some will do it by by requirement, right? Um, in other words, as grosses come down, that's when people will have to start saying, how how can I how can I run this business at more more efficiently to make more money? Totally. Well. I will tell you on number three, near and dear to my heart, and I, uh, I hope to uh, make sure that sure thing yes. happens. So, yeah. Aaron, we can't thank it's been you a pleasure. Um, so insightful. I think there's a ton for dealers to pay attention to in this conversation, and we just really appreciate you taking the time to join us. Well, thank you, Mark and Elliot, for having me, and thank you, Jamie and A, as well. Thank you so much for listening to us on The Walk Around. This podcast is produced by the team at the JMA Group. Special thanks to Caitlin Swanson, James Gahn, and Michaela Gerritsen for helping us produce this episode and others. If you're a dealer owner, if you're a general manager, regardless of your career in the automotive, you are sure to pick up some insights on I The Walk Around. I like what you did there. Appreciate it. Yeah, that's nice. And uh, we uh, we appreciate all of our listeners. Uh, you can find us anywhere you, where you can find podcasts, Apple, Spotify. We're on YouTube. Uh, Spotify video now available. All you got to do, if you have an Alexa-enabled device, you could just say, Alexa, play the walk around and it will play. So uh, we appreciate you. Remember to like, go ahead and subscribe. Thank you for listening.